Kupura and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I welcome Dr. Rinky Murphy to the podcast. Today we are discussing practical strategies for cardiovascular risk management in patients with type 2 diabetes. Rinky is a diabetes physician at Auckland DHB and Counties Manukau Health. She is also professor in medicine at the University of Auckland and Principal Investigator at the Morris Wilkins Centre for Biodiscovery. Welcome, Rinky, to the podcast. Kia ora, Louise. Kia ora. So today we're talking about cardiovascular disease prevention in the diabetic patient with type 2 diabetes. Thinking numbers for a moment, Rinky, what percentage does cardiovascular disease risk increase for the type 2 diabetic patient? Yes, we know that people with type 2 diabetes have a higher risk of cardiovascular events, um, myocardial infarction, stroke, and peripheral vascular disease. But any given individual with type 2 diabetes has quite a different cardiovascular disease risk in the next five years of having an event. And this can be anywhere from less than 1% to as high as 50%. And the key thing is to understand which risk an individual with type 2 diabetes actually has as accurately as we possibly can. And the decision point being around 15% cardiovascular risk in the next five years being that point where we want to escalate management strategies to lowering that risk because most of our therapeutic strategies have been um, formulated to uh, lower risk appreciably once someone's absolute risk is above 15% in the next five years. So that's a key point. And two other things to point out is that the risk prediction tools that we've got are one of the best in the world. So last year, New, Zealand, New Zealand's cardiovascular risk prediction equation was published by Rod Jackson's group in The Lancet, and that used a panel of 18 predictors for cardiovascular risk prediction. And that's more than any other in the world. And if you cast your mind back to the days of the Framingham risk equation with those rainbow colored charts, back in those days, there was a separate chart for men and women, a chart for diabetes, no diabetes. And then there was these boxes that went from green to orange to, to red based on your age, your blood pressure and lipids. So there were only about five risk factors to really consider. And since that time, we've come to 18 different risk factors, which has improved its accuracy enormously. And what we're finding is that previous risk calculations for people with diabetes overestimate risk. And that is because uh, of two things, that previously people with diabetes weren't screen detected for diabetes. So we've only really been screening and increasing the proportion of people with diabetes who have screen detected diabetes rather than case finding on uh, coincidentally with, uh, with symptoms and uh, illnesses. And that means that newly diagnosed people with type 2 diabetes clearly don't have the same risk as somebody who was newly diagnosed 10 years ago, but had lived with diabetes for much longer. So aside from the Framingham risk predictions, which are risk um, predictors, which are already there in the new risk predictor, age, ethnicity, sex, and diabetes, 
as well as smoking, blood pressure, lipids. The new ones are a range of treatments. So being on a blood pressure lowering medication, a lipid lowering medication, being on insulin, having oral diabetes medications, as well as an index of deprivation, as well as family history, atrial fibrillation and renal function all add to the accuracy of cardiovascular risk prediction now. So Rinky, talking about the underlying mechanism, what is the mechanism or the pathophysiology at play here for these patients? Yes, so people with type 2 diabetes not only have hyperglycemia, but they also have insulin resistance driving that hyperglycemia. And ultimately, it's the failure of the insulin release from the pancreatic beta cells that's unable to compensate for insulin resistance that leads to hyperglycemia. We know that the insulin resistance itself is causally related to that state of inflammation, vascular inflammation, uh, endothelial and platelet dysfunction that promotes um, blood vessel occlusion. And this is linked with a more active atherosclerosis on top of which you have the hyperglycemia at play as well. And these defects that lead to type 2 diabetes actually increase over time. And so we have to remember that we need treatment intensification over time, not only to target the hyperglycemia as measured by the HbA1c, but also blood pressure, cholesterol and smoking cessation in everybody. So Rinky, as primary health care providers, what can we do to help mitigate this risk? So we need to systematically assess cardiovascular risk in every person with type 2 diabetes that we see. Those people who've already had a cardiovascular event, we can assume they're at very high risk. They're certainly above that 15% threshold for treatment intensification. And so we don't need to actually use the cardiovascular risk prediction tools. We can assume they're at high risk and, and systematically work through all the treatments that we have to lower cardiovascular risk. For everybody else, we uh, should be assessing their CBD risk, their individual CBD risk prediction using a validated risk calculator, ideally using that latest predict equation that was published last year. And I understand that many practice software have already updated their cardiovascular risk predictors with that. But earlier versions of cardiovascular risk estimations that use less number of variables are available under the NZSSD website under cardiovascular risk assessment, and they will overestimate risk a little more than what the most latest predict equation provides. And so if somebody has a risk below 15%, they can still uh, have treatment with blood pressure, lipid lowering medications, and obviously treatment of their HbA1c towards target. It's all of those things help for microvascular complications. But for people who have a risk above 15%, there are some additional things to consider, such as the newer medications for type 2 diabetes. Uh, which are prioritised for people who are Māori or Pacific, and also those who have a calculated um, or estimated risk above 15%. So those are the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists, as well as the lipid intensification, not only with a statin, but also with azetamib. So thinking about screening, Rinky, should we be doing a universal screening? And if so, what does this look like and how often should we be doing it? Yeah, so uh, absolutely, everybody with type 2 diabetes should have a cardiovascular risk assessment and we should be using uh, risk calculators to estimate that risk, discussing that what that risk actually is, 
uh, with our patients, particularly at 15% or over. And it's really important to communicate that risk with our patients and ensure that we're all on the same page for treatment intensification. And that can be the time-consuming part. And many times it may be worth not only uh, having yourself, but also other members of the practice or community workers to help with that in terms of um, communicating that idea of cardiovascular risk and what the blood pressure, lipid lowering and diabetes medications are all designed to do. Because there's a big burden around taking the appropriate measures for cardiovascular risk reduction, not only in terms of lifestyle, but also in terms of medications. That requires quite a lot of work on the patient's part. And um, some papers estimate that for diabetes, it takes 40 hours per month to manage diabetes. And, and so that requires support. In terms of communicating that risk, the second part is actually doing something about that risk. And uh, whilst we have the lifestyle measures, these can be quite challenging to implement and they're, they're ongoing efforts to address weight loss, diet, sleep, stress management. But in terms of managing the comorbidities for cardiovascular risk, we know that there are some treatments that, are, that lower that risk appreciably. And so we want to be sure about managing each one of those. And my mnemonic for that is the ABCs. So A for A1C, ideally moving towards HbA1c of under 53 millimoles per mole and using the newer agents. So the newer agents being SGLT2, which is um, the funded agent is empagliflozin, trade name Jardiance, also comes in combination with metformin, which is convenient for patients to take. Or alternatively, the, the GLP-1 receptor agonist, which we have funded as dulaglutide, trade name Trulicity, available as a 1.5 milligram subcutaneous once weekly administration. And making room for those, either one of those two agents in, in people who have type 2 diabetes, even if they have an HbA1c under 53 millimoles per mole, trying to de-escalate their existing medications to make room for getting the dulaglutide or the empagliflozin in their treatment programs will make sure that they have better cardiovascular risk reduction than if they stay on their standard diabetes medications. So that's the first one is the A1C. The second one is blood pressure, B for blood pressure, and there's another ABC for that uh, in terms of ACE inhibitors or ARBs, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, diuretics, and aiming for uh, blood pressure targets of under uh, 130 on 80. C is for cholesterol uh, and aiming for having a statin on board and on top of that, a azetamib, which also is under special authority for people who have cardiovascular risk above 15% and still have an LDL above two. And smoking cessation and all. I also have an S reminder for discussing surgery, bariatric surgery, which we know also reduces cardiovascular risk, reduces mortality, improves quality of life in people who have uh, concurrent obesity. So Rinki, you've mentioned the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP1 receptor agonists. I wonder if we could touch on these for a moment now. What is the data that supports their use to reduce cardiovascular risk? 
So both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists have additional cardiorenal benefits. The SGLT2 inhibitor, firstly, when added on to standard therapies, further lowers the risk of cardiovascular death by 34% of relative risk. And so if somebody has an absolute risk of 15%, they have a third lowering, which is a huge number, a hugely significant number needed to treat uh, of one life saved after 39 people are treated. So this is on top of standard care of ACE inhibitor ARB and statin. And these agents also are associated with lower hospitalization for heart failure and better preservation of renal function. So um, that's really good to know that people can take this tablet on top of their existing therapies to achieve that cardiovascular risk reduction. They also have modest glucose lowering and that can be around 10 millimoles per mole of HbA1c, but clearly if somebody's starting HbA1c is higher than that, they can expect greater reductions and uh, less reductions if they're lower. In people with renal impairment, particularly with an EGFR below 45, we don't expect as much glucose lowering, but we still expect the cardiorenal benefits to come about with um, SGLT2 inhibitors. So um, they have several other advantages besides the glucose lowering, and that is some modest weight loss, no hypoglycemia if they're being used with other medications that don't have hypoglycemia, such as metformin or uh, a DPP-4 inhibitor like vildagliptin. And as it works through increasing glycosuria by inhibiting the proximal tubule reabsorption of glucose, you do have the side effects of uh, thrush and um, very rarely Fournier's gangrene, which I usually say if there are any problems with redness, pain down below, please seek prompt attention rather than go into too much detail about Fournier's gangrene, which would surely put everybody off. And the second thing to remember in terms of adverse effects is the um, issue of rare issue of ketoacidosis. And to reduce the risk of ketoacidosis, I make sure that people aren't on a ketogenic diet, that they uh, know to stop the medication if they are not eating or drinking for more than 24 hours, either due to illness or due to elective surgery. And that uh, in preparation for bariatric surgery, if they're going on Optifast, they need to stop the SGLT2 inhibitor as well. Now, if we move on to a GLP1 receptor agonist, um, this is an incretin hormone analog. So like insulin, hormones are um, degraded when given orally. So it is only available as a subcutaneous injection. But unlike insulin, it doesn't cause weight gain or propensity to hypoglycemia unless it's combined with another medication that does. And what it does is it acts to amplify insulin release in the presence of glucose. Um, so it's quite regulated with regards to how it lowers blood glucose. But it also um, improves satiety. And by that, people also uh, achieve some modest weight loss. It can also produce side effects, though, of nausea and um, in some cases vomiting, um, but that is usually short-lived. 
And I usually tell my patients that to expect that and to eat smaller meals initially, stay away from or avoid fatty foods initially and spicy foods until they are much more comfortable after the second or third dose. And initially that dosing interval can be extended out to 10 to 14 days if people are still feeling nauseated. And um, in some cases, antiemetics can, can help with that period as well. So in terms of dulaglutide, the Rewind study showed that um, there was a 12% lower risk of major cardiovascular events, but a 24% lowering of stroke and secondary analysis of renal benefits in terms of um, lower progression to renal replacement therapy. So both dulaglutide and Jardiance require a special authority um, application, and one of the criteria is having a CVD risk above 15%. So Rinky, the trial data sounds fantastic. Are you seeing that practically in day-to-day practice? I am seeing a lot of a high degree of patient satisfaction uh, from improvements in HbA1c and weight loss. I've been starting more people on uh, SGLT2 inhibitors than GLP1 receptor agonists, as usually when I present the two options. There are a, a smaller minority of individuals wanting to take up the once weekly subcutaneous versus the daily oral, but there have been some individuals who prefer the side effect profile of one or other. So people who've had thrush before usually like to go for the once weekly subcutaneous and people who already have nausea or dislike that or experience that with other medications prefer the SGLT2 inhibitor. Really the benefits for cardiorenal have to be trusted on the trial data. And it certainly helps to have that short-term response back from patients to say that they're happy with the result. So just touching again on the cardiovascular risk reduction, which class has been shown to be the most beneficial from that point of view? So the SGLT2 inhibitors have never been compared head-to-head with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So what we can say is that the uh, key studies that tested the SGLT2 inhibitor, particularly empagliflozin, the Impareg study, did show that 34% lower risk of cardiovascular death was quite substantial and more so than the GLP-1 receptor agonist, the Rewind study that tested dulaglutide. The additional benefits of uh, empagliflozin uh, is the lower hospitalization for heart failure. And there are some emerging reports of uh, gout symptoms also being reduced. And there's a compelling um, renal preservation as well. So there's quite a lot to like about the SGLT2 inhibitors. And for the GLP-1 receptor agonists, it's uh, interesting to see that um, signal of stroke reduction. So I do drop that in there with, uh, with some of the discussions I have with patients who, are, who have a family history of stroke or have... Um, are particularly uh, at risk. So when we start these medications, Rinky, what do we need to be aware of and how should we monitor our patients, please? Yes, so uh, the key things for starting an SGLT2 inhibitor are to note uh, three things to discuss with patients. Firstly, the common genitourinary side effects with patients and and to remind um, all our patients to seek prompt attention if they develop redness and swelling in the groin particularly with regards to men who are uncircumcised or fourniers gangrene. 
um, but also women just for thrush. Um, it's not going to go away with hygiene measures once the thrush is already there and it's best to seek prompt treatment. Those who are anxious about the genital urinary side effects, there are some hygiene measures that can help improve that, particularly with washing after the last void of the night and or using wipes in, in women after each void. The second thing is the rare but important risk of diabetic ketoacidosis and the steps to minimize this risk by stopping the medications for fasting before elective surgery, colonoscopy, illness, not to adopt a ketogenic diet and uh, for us as healthcare professionals to know to check for ketones in anyone treated with SGLT2 inhibitors who present with abdominal pain and nausea and not just to rely on the glucose as a trigger to think about diabetic ketoacidosis. And thirdly, to expect glucose lowering proportionate to the HbA1c and renal function. So um, the need to adjust background medications, which may cause hypos in people who have HbA1Cs of around 55 to 60, they may well need reduction of any insulin or sulfonylurea dose if they're well controlled. But if people have an HbA1C above 65, then this is less likely and that the um, addition of the SGLT2 inhibitor will just help get them to target. So it's important to make sure that people on um, medications that could cause hypos, such as insulin or sulfonylurea, know to expect hypos if, and, and what to do about them, and that they're a good sign that those additional medications may well be reduced because these agents are working. And so uh, additional monitoring just for that period when a new medication is introduced is good. And for those on uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, I think it's important for patients to recognize that the nausea and vomiting may occur and when to seek help for antiemetics and the fact that they will subside um, and that uh, there isn't any any additional monitoring required for side effects beyond that. Occasionally, people have some injection site irritation, but it's very simple and easy to administer with the auto-injector. Rinki, can I just clarify, please? Um, we are mid-pandemic, and um, we do have lots of diabetic patients coming through who are on these medications. The criteria for stopping the medications, and then at what point do we restart them, please? Yeah, so that's interesting with um, if people are sick enough to require hospitalization, uh, there are different intensities of illness severity, which ultimately relies on whether the patient's eating or drinking or not. So in an intubated patient, clearly they will be on um, insulin and on a GIK protocol and the SGLT2 will only be started once they are through that critical illness period and they're eating and drinking reliably. For somebody who has upper respiratory or lower respiratory tract illness but is still eating and drinking, they don't need to be stopped. But if they're off their food for 24 hours or longer, then that's when the SGLT2 inhibitor should also be stopped. They should be restarted as soon as they're back to eating and drinking. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. And just to conclude our podcast today, please, Rinki, what would your take-home messages be? Yeah, so to remember that not all people with type 2 diabetes have the same high level of CVD risk. 
and that we need to use the updated cardiovascular risk prediction tool for all people with type 2 diabetes who haven't already had a cardiovascular event and that we need to discuss this with patients and manage each modifiable risk factor using the ABC's memory aid, if you find that helpful, A1C, blood pressure, cholesterol and smoking cessation. And the second point would be to make sure to use either the SGLT2 inhibitor or the GLP-1 receptor agonist. And in those people who are willing to self-fund one, potentially both in combination, early in people with type 2 diabetes who have cardiovascular risk above 15%. And this can achieve weight loss benefits as well as renal risk reduction. And they're easy to take, well-tolerated and have an excellent um, evidence base for adding on to existing therapies. Thirdly, the blood pressure reduction. Again, if the ABCD memory aid is helpful, the ACE ARB, the B for beta blockers, addition of C for calcium channel blockers and diuretics. And it's important to use the ACE inhibitor ARB early in people with type 2 diabetes for those with microalbuminuria or chronic kidney disease. And number four would be the C, cholesterol reduction with statin. It's important to target LDL of 1.8 or under 2 if um, even despite high-dose statin um, or potent statin use, this isn't achieved. Um, consider azetamib as per special authority guidelines. And finally, and by no means least important, is patient education and support perhaps by health coaches, community support workers, or in group visits. Just explain the estimated cardiovascular risk and the impacts of different treatments, their side effects, and, and this could be in different formats as people um, with different health literacy like information in uh, written, numerical, or as personal narratives in order to activate patients to take up those timely medication starts enhance adherence, manage side effects, and support effective dose titration. Wonderful. Some great points here. Thank you, Rinki. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you two again today. Thank you. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log them. You'll also find a list of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>